Hello there. I'm Ryan Woods, a Spartan god. This is my own mind. You're listening to the I'm a Spartan podcast, Scott Knowles. And I'm... What the fuck am I doing this, man? This is fucking stupid. Are you kidding me? I'm doing these favors for these bums? Nah, fuck this. I'm out here. Katie, bring me some wine. I'm fucking out. I am Scott the Fane Knowles, and you're listening to another episode of I'm a Spartan OCR Podcast. What's up, everybody? Got a really cool interview here for you. Uh, my friend Tony Canora, who's an ambassador for Bonefrog, introduced me to Brian Carney, who is the owner of Bonefrog, and we thought it would be a great interview to bring him on to tell us about his race and tell us about how it's evolved and with the changes that he's made going into 2022 to make the race even better because I've heard some really good things from uh, friends that have done the races from 2021 and 2022 and uh, want to just bring them on and talk to them about it. And I got to admit, after talking to them about the race, it definitely makes me want to get out there and try another bone frog. But anyway, here's the interview with Brian Carney. Brian Carney, what's going on, man? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. Good, man. It sounds like we've, I mean, it seems like we just talked because we did. And for those that, well, just me and you are the only ones that know, and Tony, because I told her, we already did this episode. And like an idiot that I am, I accidentally deleted it. And with the software that I use to edit, once you accidentally delete it, there ain't no getting it back. So we're going to try to make this information fresh again. So, but I think we can do it. We had a great conversation the first time. And, uh, Brian is a cool dude, and he's got and he likes to talk, and I like people who like to talk. <laughs> so, Brian, tell us about your race, man, and and how or tell us about being a Navy SEAL and how you come to the decision that this is what you wanted to do coming out of the Navy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my name is Brian. I'm the owner of uh, Bone Frog Challenge. Uh, we started in 2012, which just was the same year I was. Uh, actually, I was getting out of the Navy in uh, the spring of 2013, and I was in the SEAL teams at the time, um, deployed over to Afghanistan. And uh, with a little bit of off time we had, um, I was starting to think up you know, what I was going to do uh, after exiting the military uh, and what that would look like. And at the time, this was uh, really most of 2012, I'd say, uh, was while I was over there. Um I was looking into all these OCR uh, companies out there that were making a lot of, making a lot of noise and you've seen a lot of marketing for them and whatnot. And it really struck me as uh, something pretty amazing. Um, I liked it because the, the marketing for it was, you know, military style obstacle course races, um, that kind of stuff. And obviously I gravitated towards that. And my first thought was that these were all, you know, obstacle courses being put on by, um, various branches of the military and whatnot. And I was curious to see if the Navy had one or the SEAL teams even had one or, you know, someone like that. And obviously after not too much more digging around, I realized that's not the case. Um, and there wasn't really at the time at all, any, uh, any real military or special forces, SEALs, what have you, uh, putting on any courses. So that's when the light bulb went off to, uh, start a Navy SEAL, 
you know, kind of inspired or uh, style OPSO course race and make the experience um, like that of what we trained for in the SEAL team. So, you know, we didn't have the uh, water slides or the uh, warp walls, the fire to jump over. That's nothing we did to train for. Or inflatables. Uh, become SEALs. Yeah, exactly. Or inflatables <laughs> or foam or you name it. Yeah, um and we really stuck to the authentic military um, obstacles, the same stuff that you know we used. And that's predominantly upper body type things, the pull-up bars, rope climbs, which you do see at, um, you know, it seems to be kind of classic throughout the, uh, the obstacle course racing space. Um, but that's what separates us from the other companies is that, you know, we, that's kind of our bread and butter is the uh, military authenticity of the course of the obstacles. Um, and obviously, you know, it seals putting it on and, um, and it's just kind of a different race out there because it's, we don't have all the, the kind of the flair and the extra stuff like you see on Ninja warrior and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so that's, that is bone frog. Right. So how long did it actually take you? Like when you had this idea, I'm going to start this race and you come out of the seals, like how long did it take from like, you know, thought to your first productive production race? Um, I'd say about a year and a half. Um, about a year and a half, at least, I mean, that was my timeline. I'm not, not saying other people couldn't do it faster or whatnot, but um, again, I was in Afghanistan for, uh, you know, the first uh, seven to nine months of that year and a half. Oh, wow. And uh, that's when I, you know, I wasn't just thinking of, you know, when I get out, should I, I wasn't laser focused on starting off course racing. I looked into other options, um, you know, everything from going back to college and, uh, you know, or trying to get in with a, a business that, you know, is paying for, you know, um, you know, trying to make good money and, uh, ultimately settled on the optical course race. Cause for me, it was the kind of closest, uh, option to what I had just been doing the prior 13 years of my life in the, in the SEAL teams. Um, you know, it, it's kind of scared me to think of leaving, you know, that rough and rowdy lifestyle to go, you know, sitting in a cubicle working at an office, that kind of thing, or, um, you know, or the various other jobs out there. Um, just the thought of those, even if, you know, the pay was, was really good and all that kind of stuff it wasn't my, it definitely wasn't the first thing I was looking to do. It was something that I could transition from the military over to, you know, something like this off course racing that, um, already had that, that familiar feel to it. And, and it also allowed me to start hiring other seals that I work with that were either, you know, got out before me or slated to get out, you know, relatively close to after when I was getting out type thing. Uh, and that's what I did. So I started hiring SEALs um, that I knew personally, whether I deployed with them or was on a platoon. Um, and they started, you know, kind of being the groundwork of getting Bone Frog going and um, and whatnot. So do all you said you had SEALs like help you create this? And so I'm going to ask you a, a, a quick, honest question. I want an honest answer. So do all Navy SEALs have a good work ethic? Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. You don't. Um, 
maybe not every SEAL has a you know a background from a good work ethic, right. but they they beat it into you. Um, obviously, the training is you know to go from entering the military to actually be on a, a SEAL team, um, you know, a deployable SEAL team type thing. It's probably I'd say ballpark two and a half years, and then you get into a SEAL team and you're a new guy and you know you're the you're the lowest on the totem pole type thing, and you have at least another two years of getting you know beaten into you. Um, just the ethics um, of you know of being a SEAL and that kind of thing, and then you know most guys do at least. Uh, two, three, four deployments in the SEAL teams before they either move on to something else or, or kind of go up the ranks farther. And any SEAL that, you know, is getting out of the military has already gone down that path. And like I said, it's been instilled in them. So I can vouch that, you know, hiring any SEALs, same thing for a job, their, their work ethic is going to be extremely high. Right. So I, I remember from our last call, you said that you, you knew you wanted to be a SEAL from – early on right yeah i mean uh ballpark like 12 years old um i remember i wasn't a teenager yet and you know didn't i don't have it written down in a notebook the day exactly i came to that conclusion but that's kind of when i started uh following the seals as much as i could um this was you know somewhere in the late 80s early 90s and um at the time there, like i said there wasn't there wasn't an internet uh, if it was, you know, you know, it was like every third or fourth family had some kind of computer, but none of the kids knew how to, you know, get it going type thing. Um, right. You know, of course it was dial up and everything. So I remember the only thing I could do uh, was have my parents drive me down to uh, Barnes and Noble and you know, try to go into like the military aisle, history aisle type thing, and try to find anything on seals. And the only thing that was out or current at that time was. Uh, stuff that the SEALs were doing in Vietnam. <clears throat> so, again, like I said, you couldn't get on the internet. It wasn't any real movies so much. Um, they weren't in the limelight uh, all that much. And um, did what I could to start to you know, kind of do my homework on it. And the more I invested time into thinking of, you know, wanting to be a SEAL, the more I was kind of emboldened with it and just, you know, and got into high school and set that as my focus. Um, I was doing sports and everything, but as you know, a lot of other kids were on the path to, you know, go through high school, play sports, uh, go to college. My path was at least for me, was very clear cut that yeah, I was going to high school doing the sports thing, but a hundred percent going into the military and going to the SEAL teams when I get out or at least, you know, attempting it. Um, so it kind of broke me apart from, from all my friends and buddies type things because we had kind of different paths in front of us. But that's it. So I know it's like super hard to become a Navy SEAL. So I just think it's an awesome accomplishment that you set this goal so early, you know, in life and you were actually able to achieve it. So like what was the hardest thing, you know, to become a Navy SEAL? What was the hardest thing to to do it? Um, I mean, as far as the, the training goes, um, the saying is, you know, anyone can, there's a couple of different sayings out there, but one of, you know, more famous ones is anyone can, anyone can want to, you know, do the training for a day or, uh, everyone wants to be a SEAL on, on a Friday. And as you're, you know, as you're going through training, you have the weekends off 
So come Friday, you already have the light at the end of the tunnel. Like, okay, I just got to make it to the end of the day and I have the weekend off type thing. Or any one day is rough, but it's not, it's not the end of, you know, it's not super crushing. The hardest part of <clears throat> becoming a SEAL for, I think for pretty much everybody, but especially in my case, was um, you go in just day one and you're fresh, you're ready, you're motivated, you're, you're everything. <clears throat> and you get, you know, the ever living kicked out of you. Um, and you, you're expecting everything. And, but when you finish that day, that first day, you're like, wow, that was rough. And all the instructors are saying over and over is, this is only day one. You know, mm. you're going to do this every single day, day in, day out for the next, you know, nine months just to get through this program. Then you go over to the, you know, advanced programs that you got to go through before you become a SEAL. And when you show up for day two, obviously your body's completely aching from day one. Day three, day three, you're, you can imagine it just kind of piles up. So when you get through that first week and you're like, that was by far not even close, the hardest week of my entire life. Mm. And how many weeks is this training? <laughs> 30 something or whatever, you know, it's nine, nine freaking months. Um, and the instructors know that that's what every kid's thinking because that's just the human nature of it all. Right. And in Buds really is a um, Buds is the acronym for um, for SEAL training. It stands for uh, basic uh, underwater underwater demolition school uh, for SEALs. And the instructors know this because they all went through the same training too. So they know pretty much exactly what you're feeling at any given time, and they're preying on that because they're just. Um, that's all that's really what buds is it's it's a gut check and um a selection course that they're kind of trying to get guys to uh, mentally quit you know you don't really learn a ton in seal training in, in buds at least mm -hmm. um you learn the kind of, it's called basic and that's like what it is you get kind of the basic rundown of everything you know the basics of shooting the basics of diving you know you get on the line of what seals do but by no means do you get to become an expert at anything um you get more training as you after you graduate buds and go on to uh advanced schools for seals and then really you don't really get your full training until you get actually onto a seal team and then start going through those training blocks for deployment and then you're essentially a new guy and um you know walking on thin ice until you complete your whole first deployment which takes two years from the training cycle on a SEAL team to deploying and getting back. And then you kind of graduate from a new guy status and then you don't kind of become a seasoned SEAL until you got three, four deployments on your, your belt. So it's just, it's a long process to, to get there. And again, not, it just starts at the buds, buds level when you're you just start training, but you don't get a lot of training out here. There's not a lot that you hone as far as a skill from that first block. Dang. So how many like deployments or like missions did you actually work in your time in service? Do you even, did you even keep count of all of them? I did seven deployments. Um, but no, there's no way to count missions. Um, one, one deployment in Iraq, we logged 183 missions. Holy shit. Um, <clears throat> over six months, but yes, a lot of those are, are going out, um, you know, you're, you're chasing, you're basically chasing a target type thing. And, um, you're going out and 
get a dry hole. Like he's you know, not at the not the not the location that you were going after. And then you'd have to get some more intel and go to another location, another location, another location. And every different location that you kind of the mission changes because the whole you know, everything changes from air assets to all that kind of stuff. Um, it has to have another kind of mission number to it so everyone can track like what you know, if they're on mission one, they're off in this house. Like, no, no, that's that's not the house they're going after. They're on their twenty you third know, house of the night type thing. Wow. Um, so so, man, like, how many times were you out there, you know, on these missions and, like, it, things started getting hairy and you started thinking, you know what, I might not make it back this time? I don't want to bring up bad memories, but yeah, I don't, just I don't think, I don't know, I don't think ever. Um, Afghanistan was the craziest deployments. Um, Afghanistan's the Wild West. Um, <clears throat> and we were getting in we were getting in pretty long firefights out there um, almost every single day. Shit. And uh, a lot of guys got uh, injured over there. Um, and still just in the thick of it, you don't, you don't think like that. You, you train the way you're going to fight and the seals, you know, train as much, if not more than you know, ma- majority of even uh, special forces groups out there. Um, we're always training and you're training pretty much around the clock all, all the way until you deploy. And by the time you deploy and you're over there doing it, it's just going through the cycles and you train for every, every possible scenario type thing. And then when it's actually happening in the real world, you just start going through the fundamentals of what you're training, what you've been training for, for years and years and years. Um, you don't start really thinking, uh, I don't, you know, myself and I don't, there's no seals that I know that really that. Um, thinking back that they'd be thinking in the moment, I thought that we were, we were cooked. It's right. Just, it's, it's not the mindset. So the training was just so severe. It was like reflexes on how to act in situations, I imagine. Right. Yeah. You know, we do, we do live fire training a lot in the SEAL teams. And um, so it's really, you know, in live fire training, there's no one shooting live, you know, live bullets back at you, obviously. <clears throat> but, all that, all that sound and whatnot, and tight quarters and side houses or whatnot. It all, it all feels the same when you're doing it for real life. Hmm. Uh, there's not much, not too, too much difference. And you know, when we're in the, uh, they call them kind of kill house. They call them kill houses. That's where we train for for live fire. Um, they've come a long way. And as far as the, uh, you know, the, the things that they can do with those kill houses when I first got into the SEAL teams, it's your standard, you know, house with a, you know, thick wall, you know, obviously bulletproof walls, those things won't go through and they got targets on stands. And, uh, later in my career, these killer houses were having automatic targets that would pop out of bed to, um, you know, things on basically like almost like little remote control cars would kind of fly across the room, you know, with targets on and everything. So wow. you got a lot more, um, advanced and just made guys a lot more uh, sharp for that kind of scenarios. All right, man. One more question, and we're going to get on to the race, man. It just in- intrigues me talking to people that are in the military anyway, and it's not every day I get to talk to a SEAL. Um, so as as you're in your service as being a Navy SEAL, like what is your best memory 
or your most valued like accomplishments that you have from being in the service? Um, I mean, the best memories are, are pretty much always the deployments. Um, you, especially the combat deployments, every SEAL, um, like their end goal is to get overseas to, you know, to a combat location type thing and, and do what you, what you train for. And all the SEALs that are on SEAL teams, they're all training for, you know, that, that sexy mission, that sexy deployment that's, you are going to go out and get out and actually do stuff. But there's a lot of places in the world that SEALs go that aren't as sexy. You, know, you might get deployed over to Europe or some of that. It's like, oh, man, this is, you know, this is in Afghanistan. This is not Iraq. This is not uh, Horn of Africa or something like that. Right. And um, when you actually get over there and you're, you're doing what you are trained to do and you're with your buddies and, you know, when you're basically wrapping up that deployment, about to come home, like that's kind of like the happiest a SEAL is going to get. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, combat deployment, being over there, doing, doing stuff, you know, guys joined up to do in the first place. And that's not to say by any means that, you know, guys are warmongers just want to do that. But, I mean, a, a large majority of, you know, current SEALs or the SEALs of the last 20 years did join um, because of 9-11. You know, they wanted to fight for their country and stuff like that and get payback on that kind of stuff. And um, you you can obviously join the military. There's, there's military, you know, tons of things you could do uh, to kind of, to do your part, but the guys that go for that special training for SEALs, special forces, you name it, you know, they're, they're obviously, they're really trying to get in the face of, uh, those, you know, those bad guys type stuff. So that's kind of a happy place. Right on. All right, man. So tell us about the bone frog race. I haven't done one since 2018. And I think I did the one in the Charlotte where it's always cold and, relatively muddy in charlotte and it was a good race and i i thoroughly enjoyed it but you've made some changes now and you've got well you've got three obstacle races and a trail race and uh why don't you tell us about the different difference between the four yeah of course so yeah i mean we've made a lot of changes over the years and i could take up all this time on talking about what 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 year had as opposed to different years but i'll just focus on this year um to keep it clean so in 2022, uh, the race options are a three-mile sprint, a six-mile challenge, or a nine-mile uh, golden trident. Um, those are the obstacle course races. And then we have a six-mile trail run. Um, the three-mile sprint obviously has its – you get the, the sprint medal for, um, for doing the sprint. It's three miles and a little over 20 obstacles actually closer to about 25. If you do the challenge, you're actually doing two laps of the sprint, but you get the challenge medal. Obviously you're going to be closer to 50 obstacles for that. And then if you do the golden trident, you're doing three laps and you actually get three, three medals. You get the, uh, the trident medal itself, and then you can hang the sprint and the challenge medal off of the golden trident medal to make this big, WWF type looking, um, <laughs> you know, metal together that transforms with all three and, um, the golden trident again, that's closer to 60, oh, 60 plus obstacles on that. Um, and, and that's it. And then the, 
if you do the uh, the trail run, you're doing the two laps, basically doing the challenge course and not doing any obstacles. And that has its own separate medal too. Yeah, um, and the medals look really cool, especially the Trident one. Yeah, I mean, we've, this is our 10th year of business. Um, our 10th year, you know, 10th year of putting on events. And um, we've gotten better over the years at kind of knowing what's out there. You know, the, the first year, uh, it's just come a long way, obviously, but even working with different metal companies and knowing what's what's available to do and what you can do with them type thing. Or uh, Our medals are pretty cool now, uh, especially opposed to, you know, thinking back to like 2013, 14, that kind of stuff and what we were doing out then. Right. And so you have like open wave and you also have elite categories with the mandal, uh, mandatory obstacle completion too, right? Correct. So there's an elite option for all of the obstacle course distances. There's no elite option for the trail. Right. Um, the difference between the elite and the open class is to run elite, you pay $20 more. Um, so you're in the elite class. Uh, you get a thick, I think it's like a two inch rubber green band that says elite racer on it or bone frog elite. Um, you start ahead of the other racers. So there's like you know, the elite sprint goes out 15 minutes before the open sprints. Um, so you tend to essentially have you know, a more wide open course to yourself as opposed to dealing with any kind of lines. But if you're running elite, it's mandatory obstacle completion. So if you get to an obstacle and you fail it, uh, you have to do the penalty, but then you have to do the obstacle again. And you essentially have to stay there until you can complete the obstacle. Um, and if you cannot complete the obstacle, you have to give up your band to the volunteer working the obstacle. The volunteers are obviously you know, hyper-focused on those elite racers with the green bands to uh, to make sure they, you know, they complete every obstacle type thing. And um, then we give awards for every class. So, Elite Sprint, Elite Challenge, and Elite Tier 1, all of those different classes, there's a first, second, third in male and female uh, categories. Um, and those awards are these pretty pretty large, you know, close, closer to about 10 inches in diameter. Um, they, they follow the same. They look like our racer medals, but they're much bigger. Right. Um, and it's all gold for first, all silver for second, and all bronze for uh, third. <clears throat> and it says first, second, and third place on them. So they're cool awards. That's cool. Y'all got a, y'all got a picture of those medals on your on the Instagram? I can't remember if I saw those or not. I'm not sure. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure I do. But regardless, I can get the uh, and get one put up here in the next day or so. Um, so if anyone hears this and wants to check them out, check, you know, go on the go on our uh, Facebook page this week, and uh, you'll see the uh, the award medals. Sweet. So are you like owner, race director, course build, and social media guy, all in one guy? <laughs> uh, not all of those. I'm, I'm the owner. Um, but I, you know, when I, when I first started the company, I was everything from race director to race builder to social media, you name it, just jack of all trades, master of none. Um, and, you know, years in, uh, well, a few years in, uh, one of the SEALs that was working for me, he took over as race director. Um, we then started getting a little more professional help with uh, social media um, and marketing. And um, and now we have 17 people um, that kind of work for the company and help put the races on. 
and they travel around. That's you know between the the build crew to we really we call it our build crew and our admin crew, uh, right. admin for administration. But the build crew goes out and obviously soup to nuts, uh, unloads the trailers, sets up all the obstacles, sets up all the signage and the flagging, sets up the event area with the tents and you name it for the event area. Um, there on race day, uh, the race director, who's also on the build crew, works the starting line. The rest of the build crew is kind of filtered out throughout the course or the event area. They have different areas of operation to be in charge of. And then uh, they take everything down, pack everything up, put it back on the trailers and get it all ready to uh, head to the next race. And then our admin crew is bigger, um, but we fly in a couple days or whatnot before the race and um, basically just focus on race day, Um, you know, registration, merchandise, everything else that kind of goes with the, um, you know, putting the events on that exact day. How long does it take y'all to actually throw up a course together? Is it just a couple of weeks or does it take y'all longer than that? we do it in about four days now oh wow Um, race one took us six months (laughs) uh you know figuring things out um it wasn't every day it was it was a lot of uh weekday nights and at the time we were getting a lot of help from friends family what have you and uh you know they were working regular jobs and they'd come up you know, four or five o'clock and put in a few hours to help, but other guys were there kind of most of the day trying to build obstacles, um, you know, everything, just learning machinery and stuff like that. Um, and we were getting parts and, you know, extra uh, free material from the, uh, the railroad railroad yard was giving us railroad ties and railroad tracks. Um, I think the the electro company was giving us telephone poles and whatnot. Landfill was giving us dirt they're kind of doing all this crazy stuff and you know those first few courses were epic and amazing um (laughs) but we quickly learned that you know there's no way you can travel with a course like that you know that's right that's a permanent course you can't take that kind of stuff on the road and not to mention there's no one's going to go on the road for six months to set up a course um or you know it, it took six months to build the first course it probably took us close to six to eight weeks to get it all taken down to uh, oh, wow. after the fact. Uh, so now we, now the whole thing uh, wraps up in 10 days. So the guys show up um, seven days before the race for most events. Um, they have all the obstacles up in the first uh, three and a half to four days max, depending on weather or you know, elements or, you know, it's easier to get around a, a farm that is kind of a ski ski mountain or something like that. So right. just add that shit done. Um, then they go to work on the um, course marking and signage on the course. And then the last uh, two days before the race is when they focus on putting the event area up with all the tents. Uh, you name it, just everything that goes up in the event area. Um, and then they start taking the course down on race day, um, you know, afternoon early evening they get started on taking down the course and uh they typically have the entire course down and packed up back in the trailers uh monday afternoon uh after the race and you know essentially all of our races are on sunday uh or sorry saturday uh, the only race we do on sunday is our virginia beach race because it's at the 
Virginia Beach Sportsplex, and they don't allow events on Saturdays because it's, it's their biggest kind of sport day. Right. Well, I saw on your website that you said, given the terrain, you know, you can't do this necessarily if it's at a ski resort, but when you have, like, your goal is to try to throw up an obstacle every quarter mile, and I think that's a really cool thing because it keeps you engaged on the obstacles and not so much like a trail running race, like, you know, a lot of Spartan races, you might go a mile, mile and a half before you even hit an obstacle. And then when you hit that obstacle, it might only be like a hurdle or a little five foot wall, you know? So I think that's a really cool thing about your race. And also I was looking on your website and just on the website alone, it showed eight really cool, you know, grip obstacles that you have on there. And I remember you telling me before that y'all have began to change up your grip obstacles differently to every race, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, to your first part, um, yeah, we're, we used to, we used to build a six mile course. Um, that was kind of what bone frog was prior to 2022. And, uh, we had, you know, we built a, we went to an event, we built a six mile course and we put about 30 obstacles on a six mile course. And if you end up doing the endurance, you end up doing just so many laps of that six mile course a day, as many you can do in a day. Um, if you did the trident, you did the uh, six mile and then came back around three miles. Um, or sorry, you, you ran our uh, tier one, which was the six followed by the three. Right. And then you did a whole nother challenge again. Um, and then anyways, for 2022, um, that's kind of, old, that's kind of a old saying of, uh, off to every quarter mile or every, uh, yeah, every quarter mile, because now we're packing ballpark, you know, 23 to 25 obstacles onto a three mile course. Right. So it, it's closer to, um, six obstacles per mile. Wow. So, that's awesome. Um, it just puts more in there and then we really focus on what obstacles to place you know we don't we don't try to make it a wall a wall a wall type thing whether it's a wall to a rope climb to a you know upside down hanging grip obstacle to a monkey bar to this you know and then focus on making that change from obstacle to obstacle really putting the thought into it um of you know what what the racers are going to feel after they okay they ran through this and now they're gonna we're gonna tax their kind of upper body want to hit you know this is the perfect obstacle to hit him with next type thing right so. i remember and, and like even your obstacles that aren't even as grand like you know i remember that i forget what the name of the obstacle is called but it's kind of like a sawhorse and then it's got all these old tires on it and the tires like spin yeah. on it man that, <clears throat> yeah it, i remember the first race i did with y'all and i was like shit it took me a few times to get over that thing it was a little it was way more difficult than i expected it to be (laughs) now um that obstacle was it's called rolling thunder and it's uh it was originally inspired by the uh the rolling thunder motorcycle you know group if you heard of them they're the uh they're the motorcycle group that goes to all the military funerals um if anyone you know there was um there was kind of a a pop-up in um people going to protest at military funerals you know against the war type thing and families are there military guys are trying to uh pay their respect and guys are throwing stuff and causing a ruckus 
that's where kind of this motorcycle band was uh, formed and they're called Rolling Thunder. And that's what they do. They, it's a national organization. They go around the country attending the military funerals uh, specifically to get between the funeral and the protesters type thing. But that's what, uh, that's kind of where the name comes for that obstacle with the tires and that kind of thing. And, um, we had a contingent from the Rolling Thunder uh, New England group come out to our to our New England event years back, um, and they worked that obstacle. But yeah, to what you're explaining, it's basically just a just a beam that's about um, about five about five feet tall, which isn't grand by itself. But the whole thing's lined with uh, tires, and the tires are side you know pushing sidewall to sidewall all the way across. So it does make it taller, um, but when people jump to it, I don't think they understand that the tires roll. So if they <laughs> jump onto it, it just rolls them right back to where they came from, type thing. And the, you know, a lot of these obstacles. Uh, anyone that does obstacle course racing, I think, knows this. But the, all the obstacles are are uh, technique for the most part. I mean, there's right. certainly obstacles out there that you know, requires, you know, pretty good strength and whatnot to, to get over them. But if you did the same obstacle over and over and over, you'd learn better ways to do it. So you're taxing yourself less so that you're more ready for the next obstacle. And the more you can get the perfect technique down for a lot of these obstacles, that's what's going to, uh, that's where you're really going to thrive. And that obstacle itself is, I mean, I'm six, two close to six, three, I'm you know, close to six, three, really. So, that obstacle for me is not much of an obstacle, but obviously it is for shorter people. But the uh, the way to attack it, obviously, is to try to jump like you're going to completely clear it, which, you know, unless you're a gazelle, it's almost <laughs> humanly, humanly impossible to do. But that's the only way to get high enough on it when you jump that the tires will actually roll you in the direction you're going and carry you over the obstacle. But 99% of the racers, especially the first time they get to it, they're just jumping to the obstacle, not like they're jumping over it. Right. And it can be entertaining to sit there, um, <laughs> you know, watch the people try to get it. Cause it really is such a rudimentary obstacle. You right. know, anyone that sees it, you know, I've seen guys get pretty guys and girls get pretty frustrated at the obstacle because it is so rudimentary. It's like, why can't I get this? It's, it looks so easy. I totally and, uh, underestimated it and busted my yeah. ass. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, majority, more, majority of people do on their first time, especially if you haven't done our course before um, or it's the first time you've ever done an obstacle like that. You don't know how this thing actually works and uh, the fundamentals of it until you do it for the first time. Like I said, majority of people aren't going to try to clear it yeah. um, without, without knowing how it all works. So. It definitely catches you off guard for sure. So yeah, we have more people talking about that obstacle than almost anything else. Too. <laughs> Again, it's, such a, it's you know one of the easiest obstacles to put together. It's you know it's just so small potatoes in comparison to you know all these other big sexy obstacles we have. But more people are talking about rolling thunders because of how much it catches people off guard. Right. It it, it totally does, and it, and that's just another thing that that makes that obstacle unique too. Because when you see it, you come up to it. You're like, oh, this ain't going to be nothing special. And then you realize real quick, oh, this is a little more difficult than eyes view of how it looks. Yes. No, you can, you can be running for, you know, ways and then you get to that obstacle and you're just like, oh, I was really hoping for something cooler. 
And next thing you know, you spend 20 minutes and you've tried the thing 10 times. Like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> I was going to save my energy for these big, cool obstacles where I want a lagoon run, but instead I'm wasting myself right here. And it totally, like, changed my mind frame on your race because I believe when I did it, that was the first obstacle. And I was like, shit, I can't even get over this. I I, I don't even know what I'm in for for the rest of this race, you know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's a good one. And like I said, I mean, especially people that have run our race for, you know, a lot over the years, they they got it now. They just hop right over the thing, and they look like such a stud compared. You know, when the people are standing there, like I just I've been here for twenty minutes. I have no idea what I'm doing. I feel like I'm getting worse at it, and here you are, just walk up and go right over like it's nothing. And anyways, and you also have these obstacles that are different from most races too and it's like a it's like a dedication to like um fallen soldiers right and it's like three different workout stations right yeah so previous years we counted those obstacles as individuals three different individual obstacles in 2022 we've lumped them all together uh as one obstacle it still is exactly the way it has been with the three different one but on the map it's gonna look like one obstacle it's called uh the halls of valhalla and each um, each one of those you know, obstacles, if you will, it's a calisthenic uh, pays tribute to um, two of the biggest uh, losses of life for the SEAL teams. Um, the first one was Operation Red Wings, and the second one was Extortion 17. Um, both those were the two biggest losses of life for SEAL teams in the SEALs history. And then the third one is uh, the Medal of Honor. Uh, for the seven SEALs who've earned the Medal of Honor. Um, and the first one, I believe, is the is the Medal of Honor one. And uh, you use seven uh, dead hang pull-ups. And with each pull-up, you call out the name of one of the Medal of Honor recipients. Um, then you go over to Operation Red Wings, which is right next to it. You know, it's only 10, 10 15 feet next to the other next one. And it's uh, dip bars. And you do um, ni- 19 dips for the uh, 19 guys uh, killed on Operation Red Wings. And then you go over to a, well, just another section that has the names of uh, all the guys killed on Extortion 17. And it's 31. Uh, you may have heard of like the 31 Heroes workout, but it's you do 31 eight count bodybuilders or more so for the OCR crowd, burpees. Right. Um, and you do 31 burpees and call out the names of the 31 guys, uh, or guys killed on extortion one seven. So you go through it, you know, it takes a few minutes to kind of go through the, uh, the different pull-ups, dips, and, um, you know, in body, account bodybuilders, but stuff like that is what really separates bone frog from the other events out there. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's the military authenticity of who we are. Uh, you know, we're actually SEALs putting these things on. Um, come from, you know, strong military background type thing. And you can go, you know, I know, I know guys that, you know, they're like, oh, I've done two other OCRs this weekend alone type thing. Or they're going to do one the next day or they just came one the day before. Like, these guys are like junkies for OCR. And they almost don't even, you know, which, which one is this again? Like, I just did this race yesterday and that kind of stuff. They get to that obstacle or that uh, that station there, and then it really kind of clears your head of, oh well, this is you know, 
you may have done a wall at another race and here you are doing a wall at bone frog and stuff like that. Or you did a rope climb there, you rope climb here, but you get there and it, you know, we want, we want you to feel that, um, you know, that connection, uh, to the military, to the seals, uh, know that the race that you're doing, um, is kind of bigger than just going out and doing a rope climb or, um, different you know, obstacle like that. And for the most part, I think a lot of the racers really enjoy that obstacle because it, uh, you know, there's so many so many people that are connected to the military, whether father, grandfather, you know, husband, brother, that kind of thing, uh, sister, mother, and um, when you get to stuff like that, it's just that's what the that's the connection is. And I think you know stuff like that is when you're at the finish line and you're, you know, what did I just complete? And every bone frog since the history of time has been pretty grueling. I mean, there's not many people out there being like, oh, I ran that easy bone frog. Um, but it's, a lot of people have the memory of like back when I was doing the, the calisthenics part, it really hit me, um, you know, a lot harder than other, other just kind of fun runs out there or, or just kind of fun off courses. I'd say bone frog is not fun, but it just has that, uh, you know, differentiator. Yeah. And like I said, when in Charlotte, I ran open for the first time I did the race and like that wrecked me going through there, just doing open. So I can't imagine, you know, you come in there and your heart rate's in zone five, you know, running elite, and then you have to go through all these exercises. I imagine, you know, you were wrecked leaving there like that. So that, yeah, it's, it's a uh, it definitely levels the playing field, you know. I'm sure that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do too. Is that you know we try to set up courses that if you're just a runner and like I'm just a kick-ass runner, like you're going to do really well. But guys that are on you know really kick-ass with obstacles are going to you're going to be on a level playing field and stuff like that. But that whole functional fitness piece um, with the calisthenic part, uh, it gets a lot of people that weren't expecting it or whatnot. Or like, I've been, I've been training for obstacles and I've been running, you know, half marathons every week to get ready for this race. And then they get to that part. And like, I didn't train for this. <laughs> I, I wasn't, I know I was going to be doing, you know, the pull-ups followed by the dips followed by the uh, 31 burpees. And of course, you know, you're, it's typically you know, relatively far into the race where your heart rate's already maxed out. So, Yeah, and y'all got some really cool rigs, too. I mean, it's not just your basic, like, rings, you know. Y'all have, like, the, the chopper where it's actually, like, a spin, a spinning handlebars. And you've got, yeah, like, some low like rigs. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, what is your favorite obstacle to do? Um, I do like the chopper one a lot because... I mean, it's just, it, again, it's technique, but if you have the right technique, it's really fun. Um, we did change it, I think, last year, but we used to have um, three lanes of 10 chopper blades each. So when you're going across, and you have to swing from 10 different chopper blades, and each wow. chopper blade has four four pegs coming off it, like a, like a fan from hanging from your house, you know, ceiling in your house type thing, but they're they're like two, two foot long monkey bars coming out and, uh, you grab on, you're supposed to grab on with one hand and swing. And as you're swinging, you do your, you know, next hand to the next bar and you go through the 10 different monkey bars, like, uh, like you're going between cones, uh, traffic cones on the road type thing, but as you're swinging through them and, um, now we've changed it up. Um, so it's, it's less, so we can get more, more people going at a time. Um, so, more lanes but less bars and it's just a fun one to do if you 
getting it um, if you get the technique down. But this year, the guys really put a lot of attention into um, Mike and Murph, which is another obstacle, uh, pays tribute to Fallen Seals. Uh, Mike Murphy, um, the Medal of Honor. Uh, in, yeah, in Afghanistan, there's a movie, Lone Survivor, after him. Uh, and then the other one is uh, Mike Monsoor, who got the Medal of Honor for jumping on a grenade and uh, saving you know, a bunch of SEAL buddies on a rooftop uh, in Iraq. I uh, knew them both real personally. Wow. But anyways, uh, that also was Mike Murph, and that's who it is. That's who it's for. And the guys kind of started working on it on our last race in 2021 uh, in Dallas. And then they did a lot of work on it for our first race of this year. And they've been kind of changing it up uh, or adding to it, improving it kind of almost with every race going forward. So it's, it's pretty awesome. It's got, yeah, I mean, I, even to explain what it is now, it's, <laughs> it's vert, vertical cargo nets that you got to traverse, you know, they're hanging from the, from the top of the rig and you've got to go across them that way to swing out to a rope, to do a rope climb up in the middle of it, to then get momentum and swing to a monkey bar onto another cargo net go down underneath the cargo net to another rope. It's just, there's a lot to it. And you're just like, how does anyone get the technique for this? You know, I think like it's so many different techniques wrapped into one, but, um, it's definitely different. Uh, it's cool. People are liking it. Uh, especially like the diehard racers they've been doing, you know, bone fries forever. It's like, I got most of your course down you know, to that technique. I can get over, you know, the first time I did rolling thinner, it took me a half an hour. Now I, I jump right over that kind of thing. And, um, majority of the obstacles I got, and then they get to like, you know, something like that that's new, and it's a whole another mind mind game trying to figure out you know the best way to get across it and whatnot. Right. Um, and, go ahead. And so um, you've already had a couple of races this year, and you've got another one coming up in Massachusetts on May the twenty first. And, and didn't you tell me that that's kind of like your home base event, like your premier event of the year? It is. It's our it's our biggest event. It's our premier event. It's the um, it's at a, a ski resort called Berkshire East, and that's where we held our first event ever um, back in 2013. Um, and we it's obviously on a ski mountain in New England uh, in the Berkshires, so kind of Western Mass, you know, closer to Vermont, I'd say, than Connecticut, and. Um, the mountain itself is is an obstacle, and you know anyone that's running an obstacle course on a ski mountain knows that automatically. That just running that course is going to, you know, be entertaining to say the least. And then you add obstacles all over it, and it's uh, there's just no other course uh, that compares for for us at least um, to a, to the one we do here at home because a it's a ski mountain that's that's first and foremost. But that first year when we did, when we spent six months building the course and close to two months taking it down, we learned that, uh, that property, that venue, that ski resort more intimately than you can get from any other event where you go in, you know, even if you scout the venue, you know, six months, a year out before you put the event on, you know, typical scouting trips, you're there for two days max to kind of go through and check out the course and figure out, figure out where you want to go and what parts of the property you can use. Um, you know, the amount of time we we've spent on that mountain over the years, um, 
just makes it, we, we can really utilize everything it has to offer and we just have the best course up there. So, um, yeah, that's our, our, our next race is our, our home event, May 21st, uh, Armed Forces Day. We were doing uh, exclusively Armed Forces Day for that event for the first six years. And I think we got kicked off of it for COVID mm. in 2020. And we had to move it. We, were, we kind of kept moving it because it's such a big event for us, thinking that COVID was only going to last, you know, three weeks and then a month or you know, two months max, that kind of thing. And anyways, then 2021, we did it in June um, again because COVID was kind of just wrapping up and health department stuff and restrictions. So we did it in June. But 2022, we're coming back to Armed Forces Day uh may 21st uh for our home event and again they'll you know it'll be the same thing it'll be you know uh 20 25 ish obstacles spread over three miles uh on a ski on a ski resort and if you're doing the sprint that's you know three miles 25 obstacles it's it's only three miles so it's not that daunting but the majority of our racers i'd say do our our longer distances uh so a lot of those guys are out there for six to nine miles and it's a hell of an event, it's a hell of a race that you kind of can't can't reproduce, you know, at farms, at uh, at motocross tracks, that kind of stuff. We try to, but nothing tops the ski mountain. Right, and like your last race of the year is November the fifth, and is it actually at the Talladega track in Alabama? Right. Yeah, that's an amazing course too. I mean, the 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 NASCAR track Talladega is just absolutely awestruck when you when you come in in there you know it feels like you're just well you are you're showing up at this this massive stadium type thing and it feels like this you're at this huge event you're like wait a minute i'm the one i'm not here to like watch the race i'm actually part of the race i'm racing and um the big misnomer that we get with uh, specifically our talladega race is people think that you know it's going to be extremely flat or it's going to be on the track so I'm going to wear different shoes or I'm going to wear, uh, you know, my running shoes just because of that. And then uh, they have massive, massive grandstands there that span miles. <laughs> and the amount of elevation people get uh, just by running the grandstands and in the uh, corridors there and running around, not to say, you know, majority of, majority of the track is kind of on the infield or getting out in the woods uh, just outside of the track. But still, uh, we crush them, a lot of racers with uh, the stairs there. And that's the kind of feedback. Like I was not expecting any <laughs> elevation. I'm in the middle of Alabama, Alabama here, where there's not a mountain to see for good ways, and yet my Garmin just says I climbed you know, three thousand feet of elevation. Like, <laughs> how the hell is that possible? Like, oh, it's bone for you. Yep. <clears throat> and so, I mean, I know that you used to have a, a race in Georgia, man, and uh, that was like your last race that. I mean, you had the race, I remember you telling me you had the whole race put together and like COVID shut you down. Like, what was it that, that same week the race was going to be put on? It was the same week the COVID came out. Um, I'd have to look exactly my notes, but I want to say our race was like March 20th of 2000 and, uh, you know, very close to that date. I'm sure everyone everyone knows, you know, for essentially the whole country or the whole world seemed to shut down right around March 15th, yeah. uh, middle of March there. So the guys had already been on site for uh, four or five days. Um, at the time, uh, they got the entire course up, 
and I remember they just called me on the phone, like, "Hey, boss, it's the uh, it's letting you know the whole course is up. It's good to go. We're going to get working on, you know, tents now or uh, or course marking." I was like, "Nope, you know, good job, uh, much respect, but go ahead and take it all down or mm. shut down for COVID." It's like you're kidding me. And like, for how long? Like, should we bump the event a week? Like, they're saying that you know. No, even even if COVID's gone and in a week, there's still not going to be proven events that we're, we're pulled for now. So I remember we did take it down and we thought that that would be the only event it's going to affect. And we'd be up and running by the event the following month. And then it wasn't until you know a week later when we had to cancel that one because of COVID. Um, and and we weren't we were not closing uh, events. Um, I don't know if anyone cares one way or the other on that fact but for me you know we are a seal event we're uh you know we're, we're a rough and tumble group out there for the you know, we're, we're put on pretty rugged events um but we're by no means experts when it comes to uh to COVID-19 or that kind of stuff so our mentality at the time was with a very you know little information that was coming out on the news at the time again that was you know week one, week one into COVID type things so that who knew anything at that point um we were we were going with the mindset that every every city town that kind of stuff state has professionals you know health uh, health professionals um, if they tell us to shut down we absolutely will you know, we're not gonna not gonna fight that by any means but at the same time so we were trying to keep putting on events uh, until those health departments would say nope we're we're pulling permits for any any physical event or any large gathering type thing so. That's kind of how we had to systematically shut down all of our events for 2020 was, uh, you know, when the health department stepped in and said, no, you know, you can't, can't put the event on because we're not allowing it type thing. I think everyone assumed, at least in the beginning, that it was only going to only be around for like a month or so. And then two months, like, wait a minute, how long is this yeah. going to go for now? And, and then it well, seemed like the whole year shut down for everything. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it was crazy. Uh, so many people kind of had the almost like defeated attitudes, like where it's like later in the year, like whole year's over, can't do any races, gyms are closed, can't even get my hair cut. Uh, you know, stores, store shelves are empty, going to grocery store, that kind of stuff. There's no toilet paper. Yeah, there's no, exactly. It's like <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it was nice to see the turnaround in 2021 and at least general steps back to normalcy, you know, uh, they weren't giant leaps by any means, but with every every little restriction being lifted and whatnot, it definitely was good. So, um, at least for the races now, there are no restrictions for the most part. Uh, you know, health departments aren't restricting events um, for that that much. But there were pros and cons that came out of COVID uh, on kind of how how to do events or other other you know better practices, I guess you could, right. you could say. Um, so some of the things that we either put into restriction or were kind of forced to do um, because of COVID by the health departments and cities and whatnot. Now we're, we're keeping as part of our, uh, because of our event, because it actually makes the event run better and stuff like that. And it's a better experience for the racer. You know, nothing that was negative. We, we kept around kind of trim that as much, as much as possible, but now we're kind of waiting to see the season. Right. Have y'all pretty much uh, recovered yeah. from, covid as like from a business side um kind of 
Kind you know, it's in, in, in one one aspect, you can say absolutely 100 percent, if not better. And then other other factors, it's uh, no, you know, um, but then that's kind of a double edged sword because, you know, things that are, are affecting bone frog and I'm sure the entire uh, OCR world. Oh, yeah. All the events out there is the inflation now, right. you know, um, you know, uh, a rental truck for the build crew that used to cost $600 for the week is now costing over 2000. I know rental you know, cars have gotten uh, stupid, man. Yeah. Uh, portage arms that used to cost 50 to 75 bucks are now 150 to 250. Uh, you know, dumpsters that were 400 bucks now over a thousand, like everything has gone through the roof. And, uh, you know, of course flights for staff and whatnot. Um, essentially every little thing that you can uh, say what it cost to put on an event before COVID is now double, if not more. Um, and you know, to say we're back in COVID, like, well, I don't think, you know, from a health, from a health standpoint, I don't, I don't think we're dealing with COVID anymore, but is inflation, you know, completely because of COVID? I don't know. Current government, I don't know, but, uh, so it's kind of like onto the next thing and trying to trying to get through that. Um, I think most of the racers know that and whatnot, that just everything's costing more right now. And I know you said um, like the prices of your races, they, you were talking about how the price of the race, it's all inclusive. There's no add on fees. When you get to the race, right. there's no parking, there's no bag check fees or nothing like that. Correct. What you pay so for is it. That's it. So that's, that's been lost. No, it's, it's a new thing. I mean, we're only, we just started races for 2022 in March. So I don't expect you know, everyone that's ever ran a bone frog to fully understand everything just yet, but that's the big kind of billboard announcement is the 2022 prices for the events are 100% all inclusive. So if you're looking at it, like, Hey, I did the challenge last year. Why is the challenge, you know, $30 more this year? You know, Bonefire just raised their prices. Well, last year you had to show up at the event and pay $10 for parking when you get there. And then you paid another $5 for park for parking. Yep. On top of your registration fee, you also had to pay, you know, $17 for insurance. Um, you know, all these extra fees. Now when you register, it's just the sprint price, the challenge price, the golden triumph price, or the trail price. When you go to checkout, it's the same price. There's no added uh, parking fee on there or bag check or insurance. It's all lumped together into the total price. So what you see is what you get. Um, and what we've seen at our, our first two events of the year, like March and uh, well, we had two events in March, Dallas and Virginia beach, you know, still line of cars showing up in the morning to parking and they all got their $10 out the window. Like, no, <laughs> put them away, put them away guys. You, you already paid like, wait, what? Like, yeah, that was part of your, your uh, registration. People were, you know, excited to know. I'm like, we got to make sure it's clear to people that you're paying that through your registrations exactly for that reason. That you don't even have to slow down. You keep on flying to the parking lot and parking attendants are parking that kind of thing. But no money's needed at parking. And then they're coming to um, bag check, and we're getting a lot more people using bag check. Uh, and we used to, you know, rent these big tents and do a bunch of stuff for bag check, and you know, maybe a quarter of the event or half the event would use it. Now we're seeing a you know, much bigger number actually using it, which you know, we don't want people to have to lug a bag right. all the way from the parking lot to the event. You know, sometimes in the rain type thing, just because like, Ugh, I don't want to pay another dollar. Like, I get it. 
Right. right? That's we under, we understand that. We're like, if you pay that for your registration, then you get to use it. It's going to be a better event for yourself. You're, you're not going to be <laughs> after, especially doing the course and being beat that way. Like, oh my God, now I got to go back to my backpack to get money for for beer or whatnot. Yeah. Um, Brian, I know you said you had volunteers the day of the race, but do you actually have volunteers that come out and help, like, do the build and the breakdown after the race? We do. Uh, we we actually have volunteers for every single day of uh, that we're there. So we're there for uh, for ten days, and there's a volunteer option for every single day. Um, some days we allow more. Obviously, race day is the biggest one. Um, you know, we might have a cap, like we only, we're only accepting five, five volunteers on, on Saturday or five on Sunday. And then right. we're only allowed say two on say a Monday or a Tuesday. Cause it's just what the crew needs on any kind of given day. Right. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a volunteer option for every single day that we're there. And, um, if anyone doesn't know how our volunteer program works is, uh, it's four hour shifts. So we, uh, we have a morning and an afternoon shift. They're both four hours. And if you volunteer for that four hours, you get to run the race for free. Oh, sweet. And, um, if you, uh, you know, if you, if you're volunteering on race day, which we get them, you know, the, the lion's share of volunteers, uh, on race day, um, say you're, if you're signed up for the morning shift, you run the race after. And then if you're uh, doing the afternoon shift, you come actually run the race before you volunteer. And then you can accrue credits. So if you volunteer during, say, the build week, um, uh, a half day gets you a sprint, a full day gets you a challenge, and two full days gets you a golden trident. And then we have some people that are like, I'm going to volunteer every single day during the build (laughs) week and have like three golden tridents by the end of this one event that I can use through the year. So, And then be crushed from the build and not be able to race. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that that definitely happens. Yes. Like I'm doing the golden try this weekend. It's Friday. Like I think I'm gonna try the sprint. Can I? Can I get some of my credits back? Like yep. <laughs> but we're. I mean, for our race and for every race out there, uh, the volunteers are, are the lifeblood of the events. We we there's no way we could put the events on without volunteers. They're just as important as um, as any of the staff we have. You know, we're a small company. We don't have uh, enough people to be manning. Uh, the key people think is, you know, registration, merchandise, food, beer, all that kind of stuff, bag check on top of working the starting line, uh, the finish line parking, and then all the obstacles work in the event area, uh, taking, taking out trash and that kind of stuff that we have say rely on volunteers most heavily on the course, you know, spreading. We try to do two volunteers per obstacle, uh, for about 25 obstacles. And then, in the morning, it's heavy on registration and parking and that kind of stuff um, that thins out a little later in the day. Right. But if you've ever volunteered, thank you. And if you're thinking about volunteering, thank you. Because I said we can't put these events on without you guys. So. There's a link on the website to sign up for that. Every single event page. So you go to the you go to the website and you hit events, and that just brings you to our event page, and it lists all the events we're putting on. Uh, you click any any event that you're thinking about. Um, let's just say it's the it's the Massachusetts race on May 21st. You go to the uh, Massachusetts race May 21st, and we're on that page. It has register for a racer, and right below that is volunteer registration. You basically just go in there, pick what um, 
you know, pick what shift you want to sign up for. Like I said, half day or build day throughout uh, the whole build week or, um, or race day or even, even takedown. And I don't want to misspeak, but I say, I think we give extra credit to takedown volunteers because, uh, you know, the whole course we have seven days to put up, but then we only have like three days to get it down. So right. there's more of an emphasis on needing help to really get it down faster than it is to set up. So I believe we give extra credits to uh, takedown volunteers. So family's like, how do I get more credit? out? like going on the backside of the event and we'll get better stuff. But um, yeah, it's a, you just register that way. Cool. Hey, Brian, I lied to you. I'm already over an hour. Um, so, I mean, if there's anything you want to add here, otherwise I could talk to you for another hour, dude. (laughs) No, I mean, um, you know, we're excited. We're excited to be back. We were excited in 2021, uh, to be back to racing after missing all 2020, but we were excited and kind of nervous at the same time, like coming out of the woodwork ourselves. We haven't, we hadn't put an event on in the whole year for the most part. Um, 2021 went great and now we're into 2022 and all that stuff's kind of behind us uh we're off we're off and running really excited for the events we have going on this year um and obviously most notably our our home events our next one so hopefully uh, people are excited with this podcast and hearing stuff if you guys ever have any questions you can always email contact at bonefrogchannels.com it comes right into my group uh sometimes they can send it over to me even uh, for questions and you know, I could talk, answer any questions anyone has about the course, about prices, about I mean, you name it, we'll answer it. Um, or on our Facebook page is you know, kind of another big one for, for information. People looking for, they want to see stuff about the obstacles or any kind of, uh, current news, you know, on things change or whatnot, go to our Facebook page, sign, you know, follow that. And you should be pretty much up to speed on, on everything. Well, hey, Brian, I appreciate you taking time to do this again. Sorry I messed up the last episode. I'm going to try my best not to mess this one up, dude. <laughs> no problem. I appreciate you talking to you and appreciate you having me on. Hey, this man, thank, thank you for putting on these races for us, and uh, thank you for your service, man. And uh, hopefully I'll see you in Charlotte more than likely. Yeah, buddy. All right. Take care, man. Thank have, you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the interview. I want to thank Brian again for taking time to talk to us. Uh, one thing that I missed from the last interview and we didn't have time to fit it in on this one was, is he had told me about, he put on a race at a venue in Florida and it was like 2012 or 2013, he, he said, and it was where they used to have a superhero scramble at a long time ago. But he said like the locals would, there was like, the, the, he had a, an A-frame cargo and there were some locals that didn't like it when they would have events at this certain venue. And the locals were getting in their ultralights, which are like those go-kart things with the fan on the back and the parachute, and they fly in the air. And he said that these, these locals were buzzing like the racers as they were going over the A-frame. And he says it was like they called the cops, and they come out there, and they didn't know where they were coming from. And it was just... Just this hilarious story. I thought that those racers really got a treat that day. But anyway, you know, I really enjoyed this interview, you know, uh, talking to Brian. And I just think it's so cool that this race is a strong, like, military background or a SEAL background. And it makes it, you know, uh, a really intriguing race to do, you know. And I encourage you, everybody needs to do this race at least once, you know. And 
just talking to him about the changes they've made and the changes to the obstacle, it sounds like it's a way better race than even the one that I did in 2018. And just getting to know Brian over the past two interviews that I've done with him, it, it, it makes me want to try to get out to his races even more. Um, but anyway, like we were talking earlier, they have the Massachusetts race coming up May the 21st. Uh, June 18th, they have a race coming up in New Jersey. September 11th, they have a race in Maryland. October 8th, they have uh, the race that's going to be in Charlotte or North Carolina. And uh, before, and I think it's, it's still the same venue that uh, Spartan has their Charlotte race at, which is going to be this weekend, too. And on November the 5th is when they have the race at Talladega, uh, NASCAR track in Alabama. Um, guys, go out and check out, just check out the website and go and look at all the different obstacles that are on there. And the one that he was talking about with the net, that they you had to swing to the net and then go up under the net and then swing over and hit the bell, that rig, they had videos of that one on their Instagram page too. But if you go to their website, you can see a lot of pictures of the different obstacles that they have there. And uh, I know they have another obstacle that's like a sternum checker, you know, and I think they call it, they call it dirty name, you know. And in 2018, when we did that race, right after we had to do, you know, the, his, the halls of Valhalla, he said, like right after that, we run over there and then had to do that sternum check. And it's kind of one of those obstacles where it doesn't look that far away, but it's so high up that it, it kind of gives you like a nervous feeling to jump to that next that next pole. And it, it's a pretty neat obstacle. They have a lot of really eccentric obstacles that are, I would say, you know, more towards, lean more towards the Savage Race side, you know. You know, their rig obstacles are more difficult than Spartan. And even their, their simpler obstacles even have like a twist on it that make it, you know, a little more, a little, a little harder than say jumping over a little five foot wall like you would at Spartan after you've run a half a mile into the woods. But anyway, go and check out their website. Uh, they have a bunch of discount codes too. They have one for the military, students, police, fire, and EMS. And I believe if you on the website, they already have a discount posted on the web page about the race that's coming up on May the 21st. Um, so go and check that out. Uh, I haven't talked to anybody since the last race I was at was Savage Race, but I just want to thank everybody that come up to me and said hello and, and, and told me that they enjoy the podcast. You know, it was a cold race morning at Savage Race and man, it was, it was rough going through uh, shriveled Richard about a mile into that race, but, uh, that was a cool race. They did a real good job with the way they set up the course and everything. You know, I'm getting to where, you know, I usually only go to the Georgia uh, race that they do at Savage. And to me, that just, after watching most of their live feeds, that looks like one of the better terrains. The Florida races just seem to look kind of flat and fast, and I'm more of a technical runner. And so I kind of like that. I like that Georgia race, and they did a lot of, they did a lot of good trail work with keeping it into the technical terrain this time more than ever, I believe. But anyway... Uh, if you see me at Charlotte this weekend, come up to me and say what's up. Like I said, I always enjoy listening, uh, I mean, or talking to the listeners. 
and uh, I hope we'll have a good race. It looks like it's going to be cold. That's totally my fault because if I sign up to go to a race, the weather's going to be shitty. It's almost 100% guarantee. And so it looks like it's going to be a cold one on Saturday and Sunday looks like it's going to be even colder. Hopefully it'll warm up kind of quick because I want to do some extra laps on both days. So uh, if you see me out there, just come up to me and say what's up, y'all. And uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, let me know. We'll see you next race. Later.